So something interesting has happened this month. If you're not aware, January 2021 marks the 20th anniversary of Zufa buying out the UFC from the old ownership, SEG. Needless to say, the difference between the two regimes are, well, vast. But why did Dana and his high school billionaire friends need to intervene to save this near bankrupt company anyway? How did this happen? And how did that lead to the present day? Let's take a look. What's up guys, I'm Jason from MMA on Point and here are the 10 most significant moments that killed the old UFC. Number 10, John McCain and human cockfighting. It'd be absurd for me to claim that the UFC was problem-free before John McCain's anti-MMA crusade began earnestly in 1995. Sport emphasizes blood. It emphasizes uh, uh, crippling or injuring uh, one of the combatants. But there's just no denying it was an inflection point for the promotion. The story goes that the then Arizona senator was shown a clip from a UFC fight and it disturbed him deeply, so much so that he sent a letter to the governor of Wyoming urging him to stop UFC 6 from taking place inside of that state. Yet the event ultimately went ahead and as would UFC 7 in New York despite McCain's efforts to stop it too. Of course he would not be deterred. He then sent correspondence to the governors of the remaining 49 states labeling MMA as repugnant sport that shouldn't be allowed to take place anywhere inside of the US. The following year he famously christened MMA as human cockfighting which is ironic since Arizona the state that he represented didn't actually outlaw cockfighting until 1998. Plus, all of this was rich coming from an ardent boxing fan, especially one who in the same year that he attacked MMA, sat ringside to watch Jimmy Garcia get battered before being stretched to the hospital, where he tragically died from his injuries. Regardless, thanks to his efforts, the sport would eventually be banned from the majority of states. It also led to number nine, the first major court battle in Puerto Rico. While UFC 6 and 7 never appeared to be in serious danger of cancellation, UFC 8 certainly did. First slated for New York, it was relocated to Puerto Rico after the New York State Athletic Commission put the kibosh on that idea. But it wasn't a sure bet there either. Days before the fight, in direct response to McCain's campaign, Puerto Rico's Governor Pedro Rosello moved to ban the event. However, when the UFC took local government officials to court, the judge ultimately ruled in their favor, allowing the event to proceed. Still, it drew intense criticism. The governor was not happy, obviously. But what was worse was Cablevision's decision to ban them from their platform, becoming the first major carrier to do so. It was a shame, too, because the show was arguably the best in the organization's short history. And despite their legal victory, the entire experience felt primarily like a premonition foretelling of things to come like number eight, an infamous dance. With its main event starring Ken Shamrock and Dan Severn, the most anticipated rematch in company history, outside of Ken vs. Hoist, of course, UFC 9, should have been a critical and commercial blockbuster. Yet it was a flop and an attack on two fronts. As you know by now, politicians were not very fond of MMA back then, and those governing in Detroit weren't about to break that mold. So just like in Puerto Rico, they forced the UFC into a legal battle. The judge would finally side with the UFC but with a massive caveat. They had to implement a modified rule set which outlawed headbutts and the big one, closed 
fist punches. Yeah, so I guess if you can't win, you might as well just change the rules. Anyhow, the penalty for non-compliance was a fine for jail time, which was something that Shamrock wasn't willing to risk. He was at the time a spokesperson for the promotion and believed that breaking the rules would undermine his position. Severn, on the other hand, only resisted at first and ended up throwing regular punches a few times in spite of everything, but the majority of the bout saw them circling around the cage like they are on some shitty carousel, hence the moniker, the Detroit Dance. Ultimately, for the UFC's enemies, the event validated their stance since the promotion acquiesced to a modified rule set and in turn set a precedent for future alterations, while for the UFC fans, it was just a mind-numbing experience. So yeah, an attack on two fronts. Number seven, the loss of top executives. When the UFC needed all hands on deck to batten down the hatches, they were losing many of their most influential power brokers. Hurion Gracie, a co-founder, was the first to abandon ship. But unlike most of his colleagues, he didn't leave the UFC because they were in trouble. In fact, he actually left because he wasn't interested in growing the rule set that started before all of the political pressure. It started with the no time limit concept. Hurion was adamant about keeping it pure and simple. To him, it was instrumental to the ethos of the show. But with past events going over the allotted time that they had on pay-per-view and thus getting cut off for viewers, the promotion pretty much had to add them. So this would in turn end Horion's last involvement with the promotion based on this purest view of combat, which also meant that the whole Gracie clan was out too, Hoist included. Art David, the man who first approached Horion about creating the UFC, soon followed, and he sold his stake to SEG in 1995, but remained as a matchmaker and advisor until 1997. He admitted that when he left, he believed the promotion was pretty much doomed. They would also lose instrumental figures like Campbell McLaren, who was seen as the primary marketer of the promotion, and because his wild methods and marketing tactics didn't always please outsiders, including press and politicians, this is why many believe he was pushed out of the promotion. He's even said it himself. Number six, UFC 12 banned from New York. Considering New York waited to legalize MMA all the way until 2016, you might be shocked to hear that they were actually the first to recognize the sport way back in the day. Kind of. In late 1996, the UFC struck a deal that would legalize MMA under the jurisdiction of the New York State Athletic Commission. The plan was to run UFC 12 in Niagara Falls and, if successful, graduate to Buffalo and then eventually Madison Square Garden. But things changed. The media, as well as New York's Mayor Rudy Giuliani, quickly came out in opposition to the decision, leading these same politicians who signed the original bill to do a 180 and go against it. So, just days out from the show, and with no legal means to stop the event, the Athletic Commission wrote a last-minute rulebook that included decidedly absurd requirements. It said that fighters not only had to wear headgear, which is just ridiculous on its own, they had weird grappling rules, but the octagon had to be a minimum of 40 feet, which proved to to be the real deal breaker because this was eight feet more than the structure that the UFC had actually designed. And on short notice, this was basically impossible. Couple that with the ridiculous rules that they weren't about to try to do. It was basically all meant to sabotage the event and they got exactly what they wanted. The UFC fought their case in court, but ultimately lost, forcing them to relocate to Dothan, Alabama on just a day's notice. They chartered flights, refunded tickets, and without time to promote in a new town, they just let fans in for free just to at least have someone there to watch it all. Financially, it was a huge kick in the balls, and the hysteria led to a New York ban, which became the catalyst 
for many other states to follow suit. Number five, media sensationalism. Let's be honest, the UFC was well aware that its initial marketing strategy would draw criticism from the mainstream press. That was the whole point. I mean, look at their slogans, two men enter, one man leaves, and there are no rules. You know, the whole spiel. They wanted to sound so bad that they could actually get negative press. It's that classic cliche, any press is good press. In hindsight, it's fair to call it a great short-term strategy, but a catastrophic long-term one. You convince people someone might die in the cage and they actually start to believe you. And so while as nauseating as the hand-wringing from the press was, it was effective for their cause in getting the sport banned. For example, take the event I just spoke about, UFC 12. After New York agreed to sanction it, even with the ridiculous rules, the New York Times began publishing scathing critiques of the UFC and the state's new legislation. And perhaps even more than the politicians, they power thrusted the UFC into the public consciousness. Pretty much every time the media covered MMA back then, it was all negative. Every article had some sort of eye-catching headline like, death is cheap, maybe it's just $14.95. It's the sort of thing that the UFC wanted, mind you. After all, it was their actual marketing strategy, but in the long term, it drew all the political backlash leading to the dark ages and near bankruptcy. Number four, Japan, pride, and a loss of stars. Just two months before the UFC arrived in Japan for UFC 15.5, Pride Fighting Championships debuted, and talk about a stark contrast between them. Despite being the more seasoned organization, the UFC promotion drew just 5,000 fans, while Pride, the rookie company, attracted a massive crowd of over 48,000 people. Unlike their American counterparts who struggled to attract press, well, positive press, the media arrived in droves to cover the Japanese promotion with glee. Pride also didn't have trouble securing distribution with Fuji TV and Sky Perfect TV agreeing to air their events. The UFC, on the other hand, struggled just to stay on pay-per-view. And this was the case years before Pride even came around as MMA's Goliath. Promotions like Pancrase drew 7,000 in their first event, 11,000 for their inaugural tournament, and Rings was able to draw large numbers as well as Valetudo Japan. In short, Japan was the promised land for MMA. Guys like Mark Kerr, who dominated in the UFC, left for pride when he realized he could just make a better living fighting in Japan. The same goes for Mark Coleman and even Randy Couture, who vacated his UFC title in 1997 to compete in Shudo and later again in rings. Unfortunately, we never did see him pride, but the idea was the same. The UFC simply could not compete financially with what Japanese promotions could offer. It just hurt them more and more year over year as legends like Don Fry, Hoist Gracie, and Ken Shamrock chose pride over their old stomping grounds in the UFC, and it's just the kind of star power that the UFC would have killed to get in the late 1990s on their deathbed. But speaking of stars, number three, Frank Shamrock retiring. Remember what I said about UFC 15.5 in Japan? Well, it featured Frank Shamrock's UFC debut. He beat Olympic gold medalist Kevin Jackson with a 22-second armbar capturing the inaugural UFC middleweight belt, which is now known as the light heavyweight division. A product of his stepbrother Ken's legendary lion's den, Frank broke away after a dispute and formed the alliance alongside Maurice Smith and AKA head coach Javier Mendez. Frank flourished as a result. He also proved that he was a reliable attraction, headlining three subsequent pay-per-views after capturing the UFC title and delivering spectacular performances. He knocked out Igor Zinoviev, then he would knee bar Jeremy Horn before stopping the last man who beat him, John Lober, by TKO. He just looked incredible. And all of this would set up a showdown with rising young star Tito Ortiz. And in a fight of the decade scrap, Frank finished Tito in what was probably the best performance in UFC history up until that point. A 
It's one of the best MMA fights ever. The then president Bob Myrowitz stood in the center of the cage, congratulated MMA's first true dominant belt holder way before anyone would build a streak similar to that and called him the UFC's greatest champion ever. Finally, the promotion had an enduring talent and an emerging star to hang their hat on during their darkest period financially. It felt like they potentially had a savior for the promotion. So what did Frank do after he said all this? I think I'm going to leave this belt in the ring here for the next crew to pick up and retire my title tonight. He later explained that he didn't want to risk injury when the pay wasn't sufficient, although it's believed that he was trying to do essentially what Randy Couture did, but in his case, go to Pride and fight Sakuraba, who was seen as the other best fighter on the planet. Either way, it was a massive blow for the UFC to lose a star like this. Number two, undiversified distribution. As I've mentioned throughout the video, one of the UFC's most salient issues was that they just couldn't stay on TV. As I mentioned, Cablevision banned them before UFC 8, and yeah, John McCain and his allies realized how critically that hamstrung the promotion, so they pressured the other major TV providers to drop their programming as well. And yeah, they did. What expedited it, however, was McCain becoming chairman of the Commerce Committee in 1997 because he now had direct oversight of the entire cable industry. And naturally, no provider wanted to defy the government, so this led to most cutting ties with the UFC, which was just devastating. And with the boycott, the UFC's potential customer base ranked from 35 million at its peak to just 7.5 million in 1999, if the UFC somehow managed to diversify their distribution. Sort of like how Pride ran monthly broadcasts on Fuji TV and pay-per-views with Sky Perfect TV, or how the UFC does now with pay-per-view, ESPN, ESPN+, Fight Pass, and in-house streaming platform, you know, that whole thing. But unfortunately, this was the late 1990s, this was not even an option, and the promotion was effectively crippled just by what they could actually get on TV and sell on VH. Internet forums like the Underground would prove to be super helpful, but certainly not enough for the promotion to stay financially viable. So yeah, all the UFC had was a crumbling pay-per-view model, as well as a small tape trading community. And number one, lack of regulation. Regulation was considered a silver bullet of sorts for the UFC as well as their enemy was the state, so approval from a governmental body would surely turn the tide for the better. And the UFC knew this despite the revisionist history we hear about today. A common misconception about pre-Zufa UFC is that it ran from regulation while Zufa ran towards it. The claim is that they operated in states where they could just simply fly under the radar, but as you should know by now, that's only a half-truth. Yes, they did did hold events outside of jurisdictions of major promotions, but that was mostly out of necessity because they couldn't go anywhere else. And another misconception is that they failed to achieve any sanctioning until Zufa acquired them. We spoke about the light regulation in New York that did happen way back in the day, but they actually did achieve proper regulation in the SEG era. In 2000, Jersey held UFC 28 under the auspices of the New Jersey State Athletic Commission. They even used an initial draft of the unified rules, which were later finalized in 2001. So from the outside looking in, it appeared that everything was moving in the right direction, but in all actuality, it was not quite really. Red tape indefinitely prevented California from moving forward, and no other commissions were even interested in opening up. The promotion did have a brief and relatively good meeting with the Nevada State Athletic Commission. However, according to Bob Myritz, Lorenzo Fertitta, a then-Nevada State Athletic Commissioner, reneged on his initial vote, which ultimately blocked the UFC in Nevada. The Fertitta's 
parent company, Zufa, would purchase the UFC not long after, and what do you know, they found themselves in Vegas in short order. Regardless of all of this, the promotion's failure to achieve sanctioning outside of New Jersey was just too little, too late, as the company was essentially already bled dry by then. I'd love to give a massive shout out to Rob Palin for helping out with the writing on this list. You can follow him on Twitter at the Robert Palin, and I'd like to give a huge shout out to Clay for editing this video. You can follow him on Twitter at Uncle Joey MMA. And lastly, thanks to Ben Rosette for writing the intro music. You can find all of his music wherever music is available online, as well as follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Ben Rosette. Hey everybody, thanks for watching that video. Like and subscribe if you enjoyed it. We do at least three video uploads per week, so you get a pretty good value out of it. Comment below if we missed anything or if you just liked it. You can follow me personally on Twitter at JasonTheHeart or our official account at OnPointMMA on Twitter. And if you'd like to get a little bit more involved in our community, you can join us on Discord. The links are in the description. Thanks so much, and we'll see you on the next video.